From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Parallel parking has become way easier because of the modern cars have these backup cameras. Parallel parking used to be this like awesome magic trick that, you know, you had to you had to really master. Uh, Now it's like it's trivial. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here virtually with Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Um, we wanted to get back on the pandemic beat today, um, although as usual, non-pandemic white paper to to lighten the mood um, or, or whatever happens to your mood. Um, but I thought it would be a good time to, to start um, thinking about the, the economic situation in the country. Uh, we had our first tranche of unemployment data uh, came out came out last week, said that in April, the unemployment rate went up to nearly 15%, uh, which is the worst since the Great Depression. The BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, who does this survey, they like appended a note and they said that they feel there's very strong evidence that a lot of people answered their question wrong and said that they were absent from their job for other reasons. There's like a number of normal reasons, like I was sick or I couldn't because of the weather, um, and that those people, the BLS feels, were actually put on temporary furlough by their bosses and should have classified themselves as unemployed. Um, so, So the BLS thinks that the unemployment rate is actually about 20%. But the rule is they take the survey answers at face value. So the official stats say um, 14 point point something percent. Um, That's obviously really, uh, really bad. It is driving some of the sentiment that we need to reopen the economy. I mean, that's a debate. You know, that we've been talking about. But I mean, I think it's pretty clear that some sectors would remain depressed, sort of no matter what you did, right? Like, we're not going to be doing like, random conferences and conventions at, at, at the same pace that that we used to. And Congress, after being very sort of quick on the go with a couple bills early, now seems to have basically stalled out. Uh, Democrats are working on legislation. Um, it, it's possible that Pelosi will, will unveil it actually before this episode is released. Uh, but this is a whatever she's working on is like a House Democrats wish list. It's not a negotiation with Republicans. Um, the White House says they are not really engaged with these talks. Um, Mitch McConnell is saying he wants to wait and see what happens. Uh, but I feel like we can see what's happening. I mean, I even look I, I walk on the street. I see stores that have boarded up. I see some businesses that are talking about reopening, but some that have already permanently closed. And it it it, it seems like I, I don't exactly know what we're waiting to see. Well, I mean, I think the argument would be if you believe that right now the major factor in reduced economic activity are state stay at home orders, 
then, you know, you believe that it's a better idea to lift those and see how much this is a demand problem. And then if it's a demand problem, you can fix it from there. Now, is there evidence that if states lifted stay at home orders, that there would be a resumption of economic activity to the extent we saw like pre shutdown? No, not at all. Right. In order to believe this theory, you'd have to believe that for some unstated reason, a large number of Americans who, in fact, want to resume their normal lives and would be willing to do so if only there weren't stay-at-home orders in place are lying to pollsters about what they'd be willing to do. Um, but if you, you know, if you are, you know, don't think that the polls reflect like the real sentiments of the American people, or if you believe in the power of elite messaging and say, okay, they're just saying this because their states are under these orders. Once governors send the message that like, it's okay to go out, people will go out and there won't be any problems. Then I could maybe see the argument for, we aren't going to, on the one hand, artificially shut down economic activity. And on the other hand, artificially keep people in place. We should just like kind of let those problems cancel each other out. Right. And it's pretty clear that when you hear from close allies of the president who are big fans of opening up uh, immediately, not even in the way that many states want to do so, but in a way that some of the protest groups want to do so. Um, someone like Stephen Moore, who's saying, I'm the biggest advocate of opening up, but he told the Washington Post, I have two relatives who won't leave the house. So this is even for the people who have the most if the elites and if government said you could go out, people would just go out. Even the people who have that viewpoint are well aware that their viewpoint is not particularly popular, even within their own families. Well, and, you know, I mean, I think it's worth when when you think about the economic impact of opening up, right? Like be try to take a generous view of it, right? But still see what's realistic, because everybody, it seems to me, concedes that there is a swath of the population that would need to exercise an enhanced level of caution. And a big part of what people are saying about open up is that it's not that there's no risk, but that we should have a more individualized take on the risk, um, which is fine. But the fraction of the population that is elderly or that has hypertension um, or heart disease, other things like that, like that's not a small number no. of people, right? Especially as we continue to discover new risk factors. Right. So you're so you're talking about, you know, I don't know what you want to back of the envelope, but 15, 20 percent of the population would still be advised to be incredibly cautious about their activities. Then you have other things. Right. So like office jobs like like ours. Right. Which we have not shut down Fox. Obviously, we're doing this podcast, uh, but nobody is saying, well, we need to just like willy nilly take white collar workers who aren't unemployed and just like throw them back into crowded downtown offices like for no because like what what would the reason for that be like i i miss the office like i i like the vibe but we're not at like a desperation point around that but then a lot of the economy is built around that right so it's like across the street from our office there's the coffee bar and i would sometimes buy a coffee there on my way to work i would often suggest it as a place to meet somebody else for a coffee because we're all working downtown, I would go get lunch at the salad place that's near our office. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go there if I'm not at the office. But also, part of the reason I would go out to get that salad, I mean, I'm a little lazy in terms of bringing lunch from home. But also, like, when you work in an office building with coworkers, going to do something informal with your colleagues suggests itself as an appealing thing to do. If you're sitting at home, like I have a fridge and a stove and there's nobody here to go get lunch with. So I'm just not going to do it. Right. And that's not a question of, you know, are you going to make it illegal for people to meet up at fast, casual downtown lunch spots, they're just not going to do it, not even out of paranoia. It's just that there's a convenience economy. And when you make things not be convenient, they're not convenient. Like how many people are getting their office shit dry cleaned when they're not going to the dry cleaners open? Like, so I I, I spoke to the lady who owns the dry cleaning shop uh, across the street from my house. And like, you know, she says it's been a tough run for her business. And, you know, like there's not a lot of people getting stuff refitted for weddings. And like there's no alternative, I think, to helping her and 
thousands of other dry cleaning shop owners, right? Like they're either going to go out of business and we're going to decide that's fine because we don't care, or there's going to be help provided for small businesses that are ailing. And it's like, there's no, many of them might be helped by opening up or then opening up might be a fiasco and we have to close up again. But a lot of things are just built around a higher level of normalcy than it is realistic to assume. And I don't think we need to wait to see that that that's the reality. And then there are the kind of knock-on effects of uncertainty, right? Even people who are employed, if they are concerned that they are going to lose their employment as a recession drags on, are less likely to be spending money in the meantime, which like gets to, I think, my fundamental question about what economic measures can be taken at this point in time. Because it seems to me that what we've seen over the last several weeks is a major disconnect between what we're seeing in the unemployment data and other things that we tend to colloquially consider the economy, right? Like the stock market is doing fine. There's still a great deal of liquidity. There still appears to be a certain amount of investor confidence that things are going to turn out okay. And my question about that is both kind of why that's happened, which I think we have, there are answers to, but also what kind of policy, like what what remediative policy can be taken that is going to affect the unemployment numbers that either isn't just throwing money at capital and assuming that it's going to trickle down to labor without any kind of guarantee that that's going to happen or that like would guarantee that that's going to happen. Right. Well, you know, I mean, something people should understand about the unemployment rate is that in the CARES Act, right, Congress enhanced unemployment insurance benefits by $600 a, a week, right? So whatever you would normally get from UI, which is usually some fraction of your sort of standard weekly paycheck, um, they add $600 to it. Now, the the median wage for an American hourly worker is something like $19.14 an hour. Uh, so if you assume a 40-hour work week, it comes up to $765 a week. So if you are getting a fraction of that, I mean, even a low fraction, right, 50%, 40%, plus $600 with UI, you are actually going to see your income go up when you become unemployed for anyone in the bottom half of the wage distribution. And when we look at who has lost their jobs, it's been primarily retail workers, personal services, and food service. And those are very low-wage skewing people. So most of the currently unemployed people have actually not lost income, right? There's been a big implementation snag in terms of getting on UI benefits. There have been a lot of problems, but over time, those are ameliorating, right? So one reason that the stock market holds up is like the stock market sort of doesn't care about like the little people, but it does care about whether the little people buy things. And for now, they are buying things, right? And the problem is, is that that sort of bonus UI, it's a little bit weird, frankly, because like Republicans and businessy people, um, and frankly, if people in essential industries understood what was going on, I think they would be a little more upset that they are like not just risking their lives at the grocery store, but actually would be better off if they got laid off. Um, so this bonus UI, it's going to expire at the end of July. And it's unlikely to be extended in its existing form. But the question, I think, really is like, what will Congress do? Because if it just expires and goes off a cliff, then even if we go from 14% unemployment, uh, if we go down a lot, you know, to like 8% by then, if those 8% unemployed people are like honest to God unemployed, like don't have any money unemployed, that's a much bigger humanitarian problem and also a much bigger problem for, quote unquote, the economy, right? I mean, right now, it's interesting. A lot of people point to Denmark, right, where the government has basically paid companies to keep paying people who aren't working. Uh, and what we're doing is closer to that than you might think. It's just that we've like cut out the middleman and they lay you off and then the government gives you like your whole paycheck, um, except 
the the European programs aren't going to expire in the middle of the summer. So the question is, like, what are we going to do when people actually need a job to make a living? Because even if things are bouncing back, right, like, are jobs going to be plentiful come August 1st? Is it going to be like people are opening up lots of new restaurants and urgently need to staff them? And that seems pretty... Like, that seems a little far-fetched to me, right? Like, f- folks are going to be hanging on as, as best they can, not, like, going for broke with, like, I'm going to build a hotel, right? Like, that's crazy. And I think it's worth noting also, especially because so much of this conversation it has been led by small business owners. And part of that has been small business owners rightfully noting that they are getting hit hardest in many ways, especially by UI expansion, perhaps, and by you know the pandemic itself. But then a lot of that has to do, you, Matt made the point in his terrific article today explaining why the economic downturn might be a second one, that a lot of this is coming from right-leaning politicians and business owners. It's not coming from the workers themselves, because the vast majority of workers polled, even those who have been laid off, support continuing lockdown measures. So my thought, though, is that the small business owners are well aware that they would be doing the majority of the potential August hiring. So you've got this weird this weird economic vacuum that would be taking place between workers without jobs, nobody to hire them, and then Amazon? Like, it's a weird, it, it's a very strange U-shaped economy with no middle. Yeah, what I think is also troubling coming is that state governments are really looking at serious budget crises. And for now, right, like until that happens, a good part of the middle of the economy is sort of held up by, you know, teachers and librarians and firefighters and police officers, some of whom are doing their normal jobs, some of whom are working under weird conditions, some of whom are furloughed, but all of whom have been like getting paid money. And something's going to have to give, like, really soon. Reopening is not going to eliminate the accumulated loss of sales tax and, and, and other revenue that piled up over the past couple months. And again, I mean, nobody who's realistic about this thinks that opening up is going to lead to 100% of pre-pandemic activity, especially because, you know, states tend to levy extra taxes on things like hotel stays and rental cars, right? So that the, the lack of, like, convention conference tourism deals a disproportionate blow to state tax bases. I was looking up the state of Maine has a reopening plan, and they are asking uh, visitors from out of state to quarantine themselves for 14 days. Um, and that That's part of opening up. But that's obviously going to mean that they don't get their normal summer flow of people, and they count on that for their revenue, right? So then there's going to be a that economic blow to tourism, but like a big secondary blow when they have to presumably lay off a large quantity of sort of middle income uh, workers who now won't be getting bonus unemployment insurance and who often have, you know, sort of specialized skills. So what I wish I had a better handle on at this point, and this is like, honestly, all of this are topics that make it very clear to me how little of my specialized knowledge is useful in here um, and how much I just feel like someone asking a bunch of questions of people who actually know things. But, you know, the fact that people who are being furloughed do not consider, may not consider themselves unemployed when they're taking the BLS survey, but the BLS nonetheless considers them unemployed, gets at what I think is one of the like key things I don't understand here, which is to what extent are the people who are going to end up laid off at the end of all of this already been laid off? To what extent are furloughs just like layoffs by a different name? If things are to get at least partially back up and running in the in the next few weeks, are we going to start seeing people who had been furloughed get told by their employers, 
actually, sorry, we anticipated we furloughed you because we didn't think it was going to last this long, or we furloughed you because we thought everything would get back to normal once we opened up again. It looks like things are slowed down. So actually, you're cut off. Like, you know, on the one hand, this could be seen as a, like, how much worse will it get? But on the other hand, we it, we do have a population of people who are in one sense unemployed and in another sense still have, you know, an employment situation. And so that could be a defined pool of people who are at, at further risk, whereas, you know, it could alternatively be that those people know their situation and can plan for it. And the subsequent layoffs will come from totally different sectors of the economy. I just don't know these things. Maybe I I don't know how knowable they are. Let, let's take a break and then let's try to let's try to think about that. Thank you. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. One factor here, right, is that employers themselves probably don't know exactly what it is they are doing with this with this situation. Like I go out of my house and we've got a we've got a West Elm and a room and board uh, right by my house and they are both closed and they both have signs up assuring you that you can go to the internet website of these furniture stores and you can order your furniture and get it delivered. And, you know, these two chains, like all kinds of retail chains in America, have been dual track online and brick and mortar, like for the longest time, right? Like for, for you know, for years and years and years and years. And then you're always sitting around thinking, like, what do we do? Like, how many retail stores do we need? Like, these are both relatively new out. Right. Somebody at both of these chains decided there has been enough gentrification in Shaw and Logan Circle that even though brick and mortar retail is a declining sector, like we want to invest in creating these stores. Some employers, I think, are going to decide, well, we don't need to reopen every retail outlet that we shuttered, that we just had too many retail outlets before this ever started. And like we didn't know, but now we see some customers who were not in the habit of shopping online. I mean, you think about people who were in their 60s, right, who probably just like didn't take to online shopping just because it was possible. They'd been living their whole lives going to stores, so they kept doing it. You spend two months online shopping, you probably discover what everyone under 35 has believed their whole lives, which is that like it's much more convenient. 
And we just don't know, right? Like we don't know. And it'll take a while to tell because you open things up. And if people don't come, you might think, well, they're scared of the virus, but it'll come back later. Or if there's a surge, you might think, well, people were so fucking bored at home. They came out to shop, but really they're going to go back to online and it's going to take a long time. And so a lot of companies have decided it's in their interest to say they are doing furloughs which carries some cost. You keep paying for people's health insurance, basically. Uh, But you get the optionality that like, you can call them back to work, which you might want to do, but you might decide you don't want to do. I said, I think, on the podcast, I think it was two weeks ago, that even the entire idea of reopen the economy, like we need to have a big conversation about the definition of our terms that we're using, because there is no such thing as reopen the economy in which... I and my spouse walk to the 14th Street West Elm and look around around alongside 60 other people and debate about whether or not we should get a new comforter, which we should do. But that's neither here nor there. You just want to touch all that furniture, though, touch right? It. See how it really feels yes. with your own grubby hands. Yes, exactly. My grubby, probably coronavirus ridden hands. That is not what's going to happen. And I think that there, so much of this is based on, you know, and you've heard this from the Trump campaign, which is very much betting on people being so happy that lockdowns will be lifted, that people will be going back to the not just the exact patterns they had before coronavirus, but to higher shopping patterns than ever before. You know, you're kind of seeing this. um, I recall in the weeks after the September 11th terrorist attacks, the message from the Bush administration was now more than ever, it's very important for you to go shopping. And people did. I I remember distinctly that Dara might recognize the name of the Kenwood Mall um, of Cincinnati. And uh, the Kenwood Town Center, where both town and center end with ease. Oh, yeah. It was a very classy place that got a cheesecake. The the sign of a good mall is that it has that old timey spelling. It got a cheesecake factory when I was in high school. Very big deal. But, um, you know, the idea was that you're going to shop this way out of. And in that case, that was not necessarily a purely economic shock. That was an exogenous shock to the entire American system. But that I feel is challenges here is that, as Matt has been saying and has been writing, we don't know what those spend patterns look like six months after August. What we're hearing from folks in states that are trying to reopen sooner is that while some people are very much signaling their interest in going back to barbershops and gyms, they are largely not actually doing that. And there are certain industries like movie theaters and elsewhere, they're saying like people still aren't coming in. I think that that's a really important point. I think so much of this has been on every front that it's okay to say that we don't know because we don't. But Again, we we have even the examples that I can think of. I don't know how people would react in this particular scenario, especially when the you know there the there is no vaccine on the horizon that will be ar- coming by August, and so many of you know the industries that are most counting on people coming back to pre-coronavirus shopping patterns, people will not be doing so. Yeah, I mean, this gets back to, and unfortunately, I know that we keep having this conversation um, and that, you know, this is kind of well-trodden ground at this point, but it gets to the extent to which, you know, you can't solve the economic problem without solving the public health problem. And if the people expressing interest in going to the gym are, in fact, just expressing expressing a, gee, I would like to have my normal life back, but don't actually feel that lifting a state shutdown order is the thing that is the only thing holding them back from having a normal life, then we're going to see different patterns. Like, Yes, in theory, there was a fear, you know, in basically every space where people congregated after 9-11 that like that's where the terrorists would strike next. But that fear was remote enough that a few reassuring words from politicians could pretty much override it. And once overridden, it's not like there were subsequent attacks at malls in the middle of America that made people reassess their views. The thing about the go shop for the good of the, you know, for the good of the country line is Bill de Blasio looks really bad right now because that was his initial reaction to fears of coronavirus in February and early March. And, you know, if this is about elite signaling from politicians to that, like, 
X is okay and in fact a a good thing for the health of the country. Uh, those politicians are generally risk averse sort of people who don't want it to rebound on them if something goes bad. Well, and there's two fears, right? So, I mean, you spoke there about the the fear for your health and your safety, which is similar. It's structurally similar to the the post nine eleven dynamic, but harder to alleviate i think for the, for the reasons you you spoke to the other fear though is the fear for your financial well-being right and that's where congress really could do something so we, we were talking b- before the show about like car dealerships are offering incredibly good financing uh, incentives these days to get you to go buy a car, right? And that is part of how the Fed's sort of relief program is supposed to work. Interest rates are very low. It's not just a giveaway to Wall Street. It means that you can get a super cheap car loan right now if you are so inclined. Uh, At the same time, I am very reluctant to make a major purchase like that. I mean, I'm not like not spending any money at all, but I'm not chasing bargains, you know, in a way that would boost the economy, though, right? Like if if, if we all bought, you two don't have driver's licenses, so don't buy cars. But like, this is what Congress actually can do, right? There's so much related to public health that's really, really hard. Uh, but if a large stack of money materialized in the middle of everybody's living rooms, they would do something with it. Individuals' fear level can vary in terms of what would you be comfortable doing, but there is something that every single person in America would be comfortable from a public safety perspective doing if they had more money and were alleviated from some of the financial anxieties that are striking right now. And that's where, look, aid to state and local governments to make people, every single public sector person could be instead of saying, oh, I hear there's a budget crisis, I wonder if I'll lose my job, could be saying, I hear Congress has extended the full faith and credit of the United States. There definitely won't be layoffs. One reason I went into public service was the strong job security. So fuck yeah, I'll take that good offer from the car dealership, right? Like these are the things, these are the problems we can solve. And so to me to say, well, we're going to wait and see on the easy to solve economic things based on the outcome of like very hard to forecast intersections between epidemiology and social psychology and like, like who even what expert would you even call to try to get an estimate of like what is the Las Vegas casino market going to look like come December? Like I have no idea. Like nobody knows, right? This is a totally like step into the unknown. Whereas if you guarantee public sector workers that they won't be laid off, they will feel more confident about investing in durable goods. I'm like I'm very confident about that forecast. It's not the most important question, but it's important to act, I think, like where we have real knowledge of efficacy. And instead, we're sort of doing nothing. I mean, I guess the other question that that leads me to is like, you know, it it gets back to the question of is there any firm side intervention that Congress could make that would have a strong likelihood of not resulting in further job losses? And like, you know, the, the super dystopian look at what you were talking about earlier with the retail sector is a lot of industries have probably learned some things about how many workers they actually need present on shift to get things done. You know, they've probably, given what we've seen in the last couple of decades with labor seen as a big driver of costs and something that can be minimized in order to maximize profits year on year, like, it is arguably the case that there are a lot of people whose jobs aren't directly related to or aren't in sectors that would themselves be hurting, but where their firms for the sake of profit maximization are now going to start look at making labor cuts or, you know, sectors where there's been some government intervention to boost confidence or there's been some effort to protect them from the consequences of things so far, but they're looking down the road a few years and going, you know what, we can't be certain that this is going to last forever. We'd better cut work, cut labor now so that we can maintain some kind of profit margin, even if things go south. It does seem that the decoupling of firm fortunes from worker fortunes means that job losses 
could exist for the sake of saving firms uh, in a way that we not only can't predict, but couldn't necessarily prevent through any kind of, you know, business loan. Like we've already seen that a lot of businesses that got PPP loans have already started talking about cutting labor or, you know, have already have already made cuts. If Congress isn't going to do something to say you're literally, you know, we're going to tell individual businesses that they can't lay people off, which is, you know, a large degree of intervention in internal firm affairs, then that's another possibility that like extends way beyond what we think of as the current kind of crisis of lack of economic activity. Right. I think that that's a really good point, because I think that one of the things that's been so striking about this time has been that disconnect, the disconnect between the firms that are saying we need help and the workers who are saying I also need help. And those aren't the same thing. Those are in for in many cases, those are wildly unrelated. And there was some new reporting about like some of the larger businesses that received PPP funding where they're saying like, no, 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 we really did need help. But then you're also like, but again, this is disconnected from the workers who are purportedly supposed to be in some way, part of this assistance. This is why it's also really interesting, you know, what you were noting earlier, Jane, about small businesses now being the face of this push to reopen is that those small businesses we know from the data and the reporting on PPP often got locked out of PPP loans because they didn't have the kind of relationships with banks that allowed them to get their loans cleared before the pot of money ran out. So it's totally plausible that those are both A, the companies where the company staying in business does guarantee that its employees will remain employed, you know, because they're not trying to, like, maximize profit for quarterly shareholder reports. And the firms that are looking at the things that have been done so far to try to boost confidence in the economy and keep things on a certain even keel and go, that absolutely failed to work out for me. I have no confidence that the federal government can do anything that's going to help me out. This is where I think the lack of a coherent national policymaking framework comes in, because there are so many different things that could be the intended outcome of helping both companies and workers. So like one thing you could want is to say, okay, we would like this business to shut down, but we would like the people who work there to be okay. And we would like the people who own the businesses to not be showing up with shotguns at the state house to complain. And we would like to preserve the relationship between the employer and the employee so that when it is safe to open, we all just kind of go back. Right. So that's like, that's a philosophy. Right. Like we would like to put business relationships into hibernation and you could structure a program that tries to do that. Another thing you could do is to say, look, we want these businesses to continue operating throughout the crisis, uh, which is where we are with hotels. Right. Hotels are open because I think we feel like people need the ability to move around the country to an extent. But we recognize that demand is going to plummet. So we would like to do something to boost this industry, which is kind of hurting, right? And there you have a question of like, well, what do you want to see happen to the employees as you boost the hurting business? Do you want them to lay off half their staff because they're only at half capacity? Do you want them to put everybody on reduced shifts, but give them some extra money? I mean, there are like different plausible answers you could give for like what you would consider a good outcome for the hotel sector. But you would have to decide like what outcome you were aiming for before you could design a policy to achieve that outcome, right? So at the airline sector is the only one where, because it's heavily unionized and because Trump likes airlines and because business and labor really like spoke with one voice, we have a coherent policy, which is that we want the airlines to fly many fewer flights than they did before because demand is down. But we want them to keep serving every city in America so you can get wherever. So there's like rules about where you can and can't cut flights. And we want them to keep paying their pilots and their flight attendants and stuff like that, even if they're not working, because we want the sector to come back as it is. And that program is actually 
working. I mean, airlines are losing tons of money, but the government is writing them big checks. People are still getting paid. Travel demand has increased like a little bit. Um, You still can, like you can check it out. It's like if for some reason you had to get to Tucson next week, like you could. Like there, there was a fight. Uh, but elsewhere, we don't have that. And the sort of both the confusion around opening up and the lack of precision from the president in terms of what he expects that to look like make it very challenging to formulate policy. Because if you don't know what you want to have happen, you can't make programs that that do that. And I think that's been a lot of the problem with PPP is that it's been a little unclear. Like, like, like what is that program supposed to do? Is it supposed to let businesses keep paying their staff without making the staff work? Is it supposed to help businesses that are still operating just sort of deal with a little economic trouble? Like what, what's the desired goal? And so Treasury has changed the rules a bunch of times. Like Marco Rubio went on TV to say like, no, that's not what I wanted them to do when I wrote this. Um, which I mean, I guess is right. But like, that's like, that's bad legislating. If you find yourself on cable, like saying it's not that that's not what you meant the bill to be for. And it's really why like this kind of scattershot governance, I think, doesn't doesn't work in a crisis. I also think um, and one piece to this that I think that is important to note is that while we do not have an overarching policy framework, we do have someone in the White House who is highly polarizing and someone I think it's Benji Benji Sarlin on Twitter made the point for a lot of people, if they see this particular administration saying it's time to reopen, go out and shop more, there will be many people who say, Absolutely not. I will do the exact opposite of whatever the administration wants us to do. The fact that they're tightening rules in the White House does not lend it extra credibility. And now that the vice president needs to distance himself from Trump because of coronavirus concerns. And so I I think it'll be interesting to see how much of this, you know, we made the point about kind of elite voices pushing people or not pushing people. But I think that there also is the impacts of negative polarization early in this pandemic when it didn't seem like it was going to be a big concern when we thought we didn't need masks that you know there was kind of uh, among i think a lot of people who might be more left leaning kind of a like this seems overblown and then trump started saying this seems overblown and everyone was like whoa 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 we're we're it, this is actually underblown and so i think it'll be, the the political impact of this and the political impact of polarization means that there's not only a lack of an overarching policy framework but even a lack of an overarching attitudinal framework that would get people to do things or not do things it's hard for president trump to reassure people who are genuinely concerned about things because he doesn't have credibility. I mean, he has this kind of like super credibility with one segment of the population, but he has anti-credibility with probably a majority of the population. And he doesn't do anything to try to... I mean, it's not just that he's polarizing, but he doesn't do anything to try to flip the switch, right? There's no, I'm in head of state mode now, right? There's no, maybe I'm not going to rant and rave on Twitter about how Joe Scarborough is a murderer, which happened this morning, um, in order to try to get people to take what I'm saying seriously. Um, And that, it does layer another sort of aspect onto it. But, But I do think that the main thing is that We've always talked about this in all kinds of contexts, that there's not a real policy development process in the White House. There is a barking of orders and then a synthesis between longstanding conservative movement priorities and what people think Trump's, you know, uh, verbal excretions mean. And it's always been sloppy, right? It's like, remember when Trump... What did he do? He was going to put tariffs on Mexico to get them to stop people coming from Guatemala or something. And there there was this like hasty conference call. I was like on with the Secretary of Homeland Security and like nobody could tell what they were doing. Honestly, that is one of the most 
singularly successful things of the Trump administration because they managed the, the the threat of tariffs as remote as it might have been from anyone who understood the policymaking process was credible to uh to other countries. So maybe not the example here, but No, I but no no no. That's why I chose it as an example, actually, because it it is true that it worked, right? But it was extremely confusing. Yes. yes. And Trump got through, right, with this kind of thing. And it it worked honestly better than I would have predicted, right? I was sitting there that night being like, what the (laughs) fuck is this? Like, there's no way this is going to happen. And even Senate Republicans were like, I don't think we're going to put 25% tariffs on Mexico. But it worked. He he out-bluffed the Mexicans, and, and there we are. But when you are in a situation where you really need to, like, get a lot of people rowing the boat in the same direction. It's just he's never been good at that, right? Like like rolling out a policy and then everybody is like, agree or disagree. I understand what the goal here is and how it's supposed to work. And where members of his own party are like, yep, we talked this through with the president and we think it's a good idea. Uh, and we've we've never had that, right? It's always been this like weird seat of the pants stuff, threat and bluff and like um, lie and exaggerate and make it work for you. And it's now really hard when people are like, okay, well, we need a multi-jurisdictional public health effort with supportive economic policy and also public communication that's credible even to people who don't vote for the president. It's like from this whole other universe of how policymaking would work from like we're emailing reporters 20 minutes before the new policy is announced and and nobody knows what what's going to happen. I feel much more pessimistic than the stock market does. I think people who buy stocks like President Trump and are more inclined to take a generous view of this. I mean, I think the other thing is and y'all's colleague Emily Stewart wrote a very clarifying piece that we'll put in show notes about like you know, why from a if you're in the finance sector, the stock market it makes sense to like be buying stocks right now, even if you don't understand what's going on in the future. And like, there are plenty of good reasons for that. One of which is if you're one of which is you have money coming from the Fed and none of it's go, you know, you don't have other places to put it. So because stocks are doing well right now, you might as well put some money in stocks and get some of that. But like, I do think that to a certain extent, it's become very difficult to disentangle pre-existing ideological commitments. Like it's good when Republicans are in office and therefore it's good when Republicans do things that make the American, you know, it's good when we think Republicans are going to do well with the American people uh, from, you know, the tendency that we've seen in, well, you know, in Wall Street the last few years to either be very non-reactive to things the Trump administration is doing or very, very sensitive to things they might be doing from this kind of broader uncertainty about, well, we don't really know what things are going to look like in six months. And therefore, we're going to put money into like the thing that everyone else is putting money into. You know, it's 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 not I I definitely don't think that anyone should see how the stock market is doing right now as an indication that like things will be okay in the broader economy in 6 months. They might be an indication that people who have money to throw around are going to be throwing it around for a while, but frankly you know, when the stock market was freaking out in early and mid-March, it wasn't that the epidemiological picture looked much worse. It wasn't that the economic picture looked much worse from a day-to-day, except insofar as the sudden reactivity of the stock market to, you know, incremental developments in coronavirus news was making it so. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, also thinking about, you know, we were talking a little bit about the split between the people, the firms and the people who work for the firms. And I feel as if the stock market in some ways could be another example of that in which if you were looking to if you were thinking about this in terms of the stock market, then, yes, it's very, very important that firms be able to open up exactly or better than they did before. But if you're thinking in terms of the people who work for the firms, the people who, you know, Kroger called heroes until they stopped being heroic, despite the fact that Kroger employees are still dying of coronavirus. Like it's a it's a weird split that apparently is turning me into a Marxist. Is that what's happening here? Is this how this happens? Yes, that's exactly that, how that's Marxism. Happens. You got, got got mad about the Krogers. Um, 
I think with that we should we should wrap up and we should we should we should yeah, go to the white let's paper. Do that. I wish I wish we had a I wish we had a Kroger's white paper. Uh, but it it it's about Wisconsin, which is it's still Midwestern. Exactly. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, the future of work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So this is an interesting one. Uh, The effects of need-based financial aid on employment and earnings, experimental evidence from the Fund for Wisconsin Scholars. It is by Devin Carlson, Alex Schmidt, Sarah Suders, Barbara Wolf. Um, So what happened here is that some interesting donor wanted to help uh, low-income Wisconsin students pay for in-state public education at either the University of Wisconsin system or some set of two-year technical colleges or also subset of public two-year non-technical colleges that Wisconsin also has. Basically, uh, to qualify for this, you had to be eligible for Pell Grants, so you had to be from a pretty low-income household. Um, And also, the donor structured it so that there was a a dose of randomization in terms of who got the money, uh, which I don't know if that's just because they were too stingy to give it to everyone or if they wanted cool papers to come out of it. Uh, But I like to think it's for cool papers. Uh, Whatever you're thinking of doing with your money, always consider just randomizing and then taking the money you save and doing a whole second program uh, because we can learn a lot from it. Um, So so these scholars said like, well, okay, what happens uh, when you get this money? And they find a few things. One is that earnings fall in the first few years uh, because it appears people do not work as much simultaneously to being college students. Uh, The other is that grades go up. So it's not just a sort of um, undeserving windfall uh, where you you go party more. Uh, Students also appear to have more time for their schoolwork. Uh, So that's good. Um, In a more of a mixed bag, earnings after graduation fall. And they seem to fall for two reasons. One is that students with less debt opt into lower uh, salary career paths, um, which we've seen in previous white papers. Uh, uh, We assume that these students are getting jobs that they like more for some other reason, has has non-monetary benefits. Uh, They also appear to be more likely to leave the state of Wisconsin, uh, which is not bad per se. Uh, There's nothing wrong with not living in the state that you grew up in. None of us live in the state that we grew up in. Uh, But obviously, as a public policy argument, if you went to the Wisconsin state legislature and you were like, this is why we need to make school free (laughs) is so that more kids from low income families can go get an education at public expense and then move to Chicago. um, That's not so compelling. And and I know it's something that um, I have discussed with university officials at a number of Midwestern universities is that they have this concern that, you know, they 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 want to get more money from their state governments and they want to say it's good for the state to provide these educational services for students. But unfortunately, they are tend to be a little troubled by the data, which tends to show that um, high quality uh, university education it often ejects people from Midwestern states uh, to coastal cities um, or Chicago in the case of Wisconsin, because Chicago, Wisconsin is a particular problem because um, Chicago is quite close to Wisconsin. So a lot of the things that might prevent a person from moving really far away, like you can still go visit your parents if you live in Chicago, but it's a much bigger city with more There's a lot more stuff happening in Chicago than in Milwaukee. So that's a kind of weird one. I mean, I would say on the whole, the evidence here supports the main intuitions behind the idea that letting people go to school for free would be beneficial. Uh, But it's a bit of a... I also think it's a bit of a tough sell. I I, I don't think Republicans in Midwestern state legislatures are going to look at this and be like, 
yeah, I'm I'm convinced now. Yeah, I received a Pell Grant um, to attend the University of Michigan. And notably, I no longer live in a Midwestern state. But that's not really the fault of the fine University of Michigan or anything else. It is the fault of the economy and how the economy worked in 2009, 2010. For those of you who recall those halcyon days of recession. But it is interesting to be For one thing, I think that that idea of financial flexibility when selecting employment options, we've heard a lot of kind of from the populist conservatives about reforming universities to basically not necessarily mitigate financial flexibility, but mitigate kind of job flexibility in a sense, because some jobs are better than other jobs in the views of some populist conservatives. And also, you know, attempting to discourage out. Okay, can you explain that? What 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 kind of jobs are the what what do they want us to do? Like like manly jobs? Are we gonna jobs that uh, STEM jobs are very much encouraged? Um, whereas jobs in the humanities, uh, which purportedly don't exist while also existing and being bad, they're Schrodinger's jobs. You hear this sometimes of like, you know, we need to reform universities essentially to make them less liberal. That's basically it. And uh, you know, if you know anything about the University of Wisconsin system, that was a major effort of Scott Walker and a host of Wisconsin Republicans was to not only mitigate the power of the University of Wisconsin university system, but also the potential cultural and political reach of the University of Wisconsin system. And you've heard that there's been a host of conservatives writing about how coronavirus offers this opportunity to reform the university and bring it back to basics. I'm using air quotes because that's a visual medium. Um, And what they mean is making it, quote unquote, less liberal. Um, But I, I think that to Matt's point, I feel as if the findings of this paper showing that Reduced student loan debt offers greater flexibility when selecting among employment options, including employment options that would mean you didn't necessarily have to go become a doctor or a lawyer and induced outstate migration, which you want to discourage to prevent the Midwestern brain drain that I think that a lot of people, including a lot of folks at Midwestern universities have talked a lot about. It feels as if this is the kind of paper that would be used as an argument to limit these types of loan offerings or financial aid offerings. But the thing that gets me about this is the reason that outmigration is even relevant to this paper to begin with is because the paper's authors are looking for an explanation for reduced earnings during the or for reduced earnings after graduation. And one of the things they come up with is perhaps we're not capturing the people who got need-based financial aid, graduated, and then got the highest paying jobs because those people moved out of state to get higher paying jobs. And so it's not exactly like the trade-off is between having people leave because they got need-based financial aid and keeping them in state because by not giving them need-based financial aid. If the trade-off really is between having people who grew up in your state and and who presumably have parents and other relatives who still live in your state and allowing them to, you know, in the four years after graduation, mind you, not for the rest of their careers, um, but because we don't necessarily know about that. That's not covered in the paper. But like immediately after grad or, you know, in, in years two through four after graduation, go to another state and take a higher earning job. Like, is that really worse for a state government? You know, I think in order to answer that question, you'd have to you'd have to have better information on a how many of those people ultimately do move back. I mean, I'm sure that Jane has plenty of anecdotes to this effect. I do as well. Of like people who, you know, initially after college thought they weren't moving back to Ohio, but then sometime between, you know, being of age where or making enough money that if they still lived in Ohio, they could buy houses or, you know, where they wanted to have kids and they wanted to be near their parents ended up moving back anyway. Like that that is that's definitely part of that answer. The other part of that would be how much money would they be making if they were if they remained in state, would they be able to find jobs in state? Would they actually, you know, would they end up producing as much tax revenue for the state, you know, or would or would they be like slack in the labor market? These are all, I think, much more, much bigger questions. And so, you know, 
I understand that the brain drain conversation assumes that once human capital uh, leaves your state, it's no longer your human capital. I don't think that that's necessarily the case, right? I think that there is a bottom line economic argument that in the same way that it's good for low-income countries uh, when they have remittances coming back to help their local economies, that you, that it's not a bad thing to have people making more money in other states. But I also think that, you know, if you see the inv- if you see investing in education as an investment in the future, then you're saying it is important to us that we give the children who grow up here the best education that we can, without trying to project. Okay, we're doing that because they're going to stay within the state's boundaries for the rest of their lives. It's so it's fundamental a difference in philosophy. Yeah, I mean, well, and I, I do think fundamentally you're right, right? We we want to know, it would be great to know what do people look like when they're 40, you know, because what's sort of the the value add of of the Midwest, the, the comparative advantage of the Midwest is much stronger when you're talking about somebody my age um, and like with a child. Which would also address the like grad school question, like, are these people going to get you know, PhDs in literature and won't be able to find anything on the job market because these same state universities aren't hiring PH, aren't hiring new faculty in literature? Or are they going into post-degree programs that will end up giving them a salary boost 10 years I, I happen to have grown up in Manhattan, so obviously moving back home to get a more affordable house and be close to the grandparents is not that uh, super, super viable in my case. But for many people, that that is the life trajectory. Um, what Jane was saying, though, about, I think, the ideological tensions around these debt relief dynamics is, I think, it's important not just to this paper, but to understanding sort of the politics of free college and of student debt relief. I think that there is a set of people for whom they look at that and they're like, yes, obviously, this is good. It would be so much better if, you know, people from the top 20, 25 percent of high school graduating classes could go receive traditional four-year liberal arts style education and then leave unburdened by debt because that would free them to take up you know different kinds of jobs that they want that that pay a salary but aren't necessarily insanely remunerative and the point is not that you earn lots more money than a guy who works on an oil rig but that you're not working on an oil rig you are following your your, your bliss or or whatever and then i think that there's a conservative view that you know would really see that as exactly why this is a waste of time that it's fine for the government to provide subsidized loans for people to go to college because the world needs doctors and attorneys and it needs teachers it needs you know it needs a range of like schooly professionals and it definitely we want computer programmers and and you know guys working at pharmaceutical companies and things like that but that like if your liberal arts degree has no economic payoff that you should suffer for that, right? That if you were sitting around uh, working in digital media with tens of thousands of dollars in student debt and the money that you make does not like adequately compensate for that, that that's good, that that is the system working. And it shows that your liberal arts degree has little value. It shows that certain kinds of creative class employments themselves have little value. And that, if anything, we need to restructure the system so that we are... um, making it harder for people to access the kind of life trajectory that involves a liberal arts degree and a middling salary in a big coastal city that people should be encouraged to either like go be a plumber if you can't hack it in a quant heavy field or like go into a quant heavy field and get paid a lot of money so your loan is not a big problem and that's like a I mean, it's a clash on so many levels, right? I mean, it's a clash about like, like, what do we value in our hearts? It's a clash about like, how do we see prosperity emerging over the long haul? And I think it gets papered over in a lot of the the discussions I see on the left, where people just like, it's not just that like, they think education is a value of its own, but they think it's obvious that other people agree with them. 
And that like, and that it's populist to say that like, we should all go get to study philosophy for four years and then like dick around writing on the internet. Um, I'm, I'm really excited, I, but I, I feel like I just had a really lucky, privileged life and that a lot of people would say making a policy objective that everyone can do that doesn't really make sense. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that it, it's funny because all, all of us are people for whom like, my degrees are in history and political science, but mostly about the Battle of Stalingrad and the invasion of Russia, which sadly does not come up as much in popular conversation, nor has it really added to my economic prospects nearly as much as you might think. I <laughs> know um, oh, you could have a nice conversation with any with with any dad in America. I really, I you know, you you could just be like, you know, what's really interesting, <laughs> the Eastern Front. It's and true. Like, it's true. Uh, I, my 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 Q score with dads is off the chart. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's. It's interesting to think about this as people who have both benefited in many ways from the existing system, but are also looking at this from, you know, from this perspective. Indeed. All right. Indeed. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's important that we have liberal arts majors because I think it generates a lot of podcast listening. And Accurate. in that sense, helps keep the economy rolling. Um, so so thanks to all of you out there for uh, continuing to keep, keep this sector of the economy open and rolling uh, and, you know, be safe out there. Uh, thanks, Jane and Jara. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, who was mysteriously ejected from the Zoom, uh, but hopefully <laughs> we'll be able to edit this show together. Um, <laughs> And the weeds will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.